Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, jmintheam.org, coming to you from the beautiful Lower East Side of Manhattan. Executive Assistant of Rummy here in the control booth, and welcome to another Thursday evening of political talk. And... A lot of good comments from last week's show. So there was a lot going on last week, certainly. We haven't had that type of gangbusters week this week, but uh, politics is always interesting. We're going to hopefully make it uh, more interesting for you out there. And we have a great lineup. Uh, Hopefully it all comes together, but there's a lot to discuss this week. And uh, just want to introduce a word from our sponsor. We're sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. See more at BeckermanPR.com. Now that we got that out of the way, I want to introduce our first guest for this evening, the Honorable uh, Craig Johnson, former state senator from the North Shore of Long Island and a now just a prominent man about town. Craig, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, great to be back. So once again, Long Island is grabbing some attention out there in the political world. Had been a little bit ho-hum uh, in the last couple of elections, you know, very predictable. And now uh, Long Island seems to be back. So tell us what's going on. Uh, vacancies, some... Uh, some state senators looking to move up in the world, some state senators not looking to move up in the world, and, you know, it could be a very interesting political season out in the uh, Nassau-Suffolk uh, area. You know, I can't keep up, Michael. Um, you've got a couple Well, of- if you can't keep up, Craig, I mean, somebody's got to keep up. So, uh, you know, we're relying on you, baby. Thank you, brother. Um, you got a couple vacancies potentially um, in the state Senate. Uh, Lee Zeldin, um, who is in his... Uh, second term in the New York State Senate, elected in 2010, uh, announced that he's going to be running for Congress, facing a uh, primary um, on the Republican side uh, for the opportunity to face uh, Tim Bishop uh, out east. And then you also had the resignation of Chuck Fischillo, um, a longtime uh, Nassau Suffolk, because part of his district didn't include Suffolk County, but he was usually identifies as a Nassau County Republican, um, longtime member of the New York State Senate, uh, chairman of the Transportation Committee, uh, someone who I worked closely with when I was in the Senate um, in, on, on a bipartisan occasion. Great guy. Um, uh, announced uh, that he was resigning to uh, take the executive director position for a autism, uh, autism, uh, not autism, sorry, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. America. Right. I mean, uh, a very I'm abrupt right. and surprising. He waited till till uh, New Year's Eve to make that yep. announcement, the last possible day to go ahead and uh, you know resign. Yeah, and you know, you know, a couple of years back, there was uh, rumors that Chuck was uh, looking to go into the private sector and changed his mind. Um, but I guess this was his time, and he made the move, and so now you have a vacancy for that seat as well. And then, obviously, uh, the, the biggest prize, so to speak, of them all, is um, you know, Carol McCarthy's uh, announcement that she's not going to run for re-election. I had the privilege of working with uh, Congresswoman McCarthy when I was in the Senate, as well as the Nassau County Legislature. She's had a tremendous career, um, you know, someone who's truly going to be missed on issues like gun control. And uh, I wish her well. She's been having some, you know, she's been battling cancer and so that's had some real health issues. Uh, but with that vacancy, you have um, some interesting, you know, scenarios because the Fashillo seat, you know, kind of overlaps a little bit with the McCarthy seat. And so you may have candidates who you may be interested in one or both seats um, for election. So we'll see what happens. A lot of it depends upon if the governor is going to call a special election. Um, not sure if he's going to or not. And if he doesn't, um, we'll have a, a bunch of elections in June, which would be the congressional uh, primary, if there was one. Because, as you know, uh, federal courts set a June primary date uh, for federal elections. And then, as of now, it's a September primary uh, election for the state legislature. And then, obviously, November is the general election. So let's discuss for a second the idea of the the – having different elections on different days okay you you were yep. once in the state legislature you, yep. you've dealt with this kind of thorny issue of moving the primaries and there just seems to be total inertia it seems to be that the democrats uh favor moving the primary to june and the republicans want to keep it or they've proposed they've proposed moving it to august correct okay so therefore because they can't agree on where to move it to both sides want to move it to different spots uh there is nothing happening 
And uh, I guess I, I could kind of see both sides. I see the argument of not having it in August because it's kind of dead time. You know, that's for, for what it is. I mean, to August. I mean, who goes right. out to vote in August? And I see the idea of not having it in June because it's still the legislative session. So that also doesn't make sense. So, but how does something like this get solved or it just doesn't get solved? First? I don't think it gets solved. I, I think that, I mean, first and foremost, you know, the Republicans, if they wanted to, can certainly cite the NASA Coliseum referendum that occurred in August of, uh, I think it was, uh, um, Back in uh, 2012, yeah, it was two years ago, August first, holding election uh, in August. Was it not a lot of turnout? But you did have a lot of people involved in the race. Um, you know, there is some an argument can be made. You know, the Democrats have made a legitimate argument to say, look, you know, you're going to you know, you're going to waste, you know, not waste because voting, you know, spending money on elections, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd call that a waste, but you would be spending an additional fifty million dollars if you if you move the primary on a different date. But at the same time, you know, who's really going to be holding primaries in the middle of June when there's a legislative session going on? I think it's a little unrealistic um, by the Democrats to propose uh, such a date, particularly since a lot. A lot of the primaries would come out of the assembly side. Um, you oftentimes have a lot of uh, assembly primaries, um, and the Democrats, you know, assembly Democrats would be facing a lot of primaries. And I, I can't imagine incumbent assembly Democrats really want to be campaigning while they're supposed to be up in the Senate, uh, up in a, in a legislative session. So I, I think, in all likelihood, nothing's going to happen, and you're going to have a June federal primary in a September uh, state, and that's what happened last time, and it seemed to work out fine. Okay, so I want to kind of run down some of the races that you mentioned beforehand because I think it's important for people out there to understand what Absolutely. is uh, what is going on. We're talking to former Senator, uh, State Senator Craig Johnson, who represented the North Shore of Long Island. That was the sixth uh, Senate district. The seventh. Oh, the seventh. Okay. Well, I was just quizzing you. And uh, let's uh, let's just tell, let's start from the top. I mean, it's so unusual to have this open congressional seat. Although there's one now in the North Country, another uh, retirement. Yep. But uh, but the, but this uh, but this is unusual to have this type of uh, open open season for a congressional seat. And uh, we haven't really seen people jump into this race. You're- you know, I think I think everybody, Michael, is waiting to see what Kathleen Rice does. You know. Um, the, the current district attorney of Nassau County, uh, someone whose future, you know, has, is, is particularly bright. People uh, have been wondering, you know, what comes next after a big win that she had for re-election in uh, 2013. Um, she's talked about as the as the potential candidate. I think if Kathleen decides to make the run, I think she clears the field. Um, on the Democratic that, side or on the Republican side too? Well, I'm sorry. On the Democrat side or also on the Republican side? I think on both. And on both I, sides. I, I think on both. I think on the Democratic side, I mean, you know, she, defi- she is a fundraising powerhouse. Um, she is extremely personable. Uh, she's a very good campaigner. And I think that, um, you know, I think Newsday was reporting even today that she was down in Washington, D.C., uh, having private conversations. Uh, I think, you know, that's, an, that's a good indicator that she's taking this very seriously. And, you know, she, you know, is probably leaning. I have no personal knowledge, but... You know, based on a trip to Washington, D.C., you know, she's a possible candidate uh, for that seat. I think what would be interesting is, you know, I don't know who the Republican candidate would be. And I know there have been names thrown about there. A couple of them are people who've run for the seat in, in years past with, uh, you know, without any tremendous success whatsoever. I think Kate Murray's name has been put out there a couple times, uh, you know, in terms of a, a potential candidate. But at the same time, it's a lot of money uh, for a particular seat. If I were the Republicans, I would actually almost want Kathleen to run and win because it does then open up the district attorney's position. And while the governor, uh, Governor Cuomo, has the statutory authority to appoint an interim DA, it does then raise the possibility of a DA race in 2015, and that would be very interesting. And that would be essentially notwithstanding the fact that you have a potential interim DA who could run for election at that point, it would give the Republicans a very big opportunity to take the DA position in Nassau County. And after seeing um, the results this past year in the Nassau County elections, I would have to say that a Republican could be an odds-on favorite, uh, even with a potential Democratic incumbent, so to speak, uh, in the DA position. Let me just ask you, isn't that kind of Machiavellian uh, 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 as far as a theory is concerned to go ahead and say that the Republicans will tank the race – in order to make it open up another position, which they actually want more. Why is it that the Republican Party would not want to own that congressional seat? 
They already have the majority, and it becomes a minority seat. What's more important? What's more important, Michael? A congressional seat with seven jobs, or a district attorney's position with a lot of jobs? Ah, okay. You know, look, so that's a key. Uh, that's a key thing that maybe many people in the audience might not understand. Because I, let me just say, I, and I think this is a good little political 101, if I can take a little kind of post-it note there. Sure. Okay. Because you just identified something as far as the motivation of certain of party apparatus and others as far as wanting a certain seat. It's not, you would think, okay, automatically a congressional seat. It's higher office. It's federal. It's, it's Washington. But right. you're saying potentially for a lot of people, a district attorney job, a district attorney office is more coveted. And look, you know, I mean, again, this is just a theory. You know, I can't, I mean, if somebody's going to run, they're going to, they, he or she is going to try and win a seat and they'll do everything they can to win. But at the same time, a rice candidacy is a very difficult candidacy for the Republicans, in my opinion, to defeat. Um, and as a result, you know, they may get actually, you know, a bigger prize by not being successful, um, in that congressional race. Very, very interesting. We're talking to Craig Johnson here on Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman PR. And, uh, Craig, let's talk for a second about the Long Island Nine, okay? So that has been the name given to the nine Republican senators from Long Island. You upset that balance for, for some time, as well as uh, your one of your colleagues, Brian Foley. But now it's still nine Republican senators from Long Island. Yep. And as you mentioned now, there's going to be at least there's one vacancy, uh, which uh, we don't know whether there's going to be a special election, and potentially two if Lee Zeldin wins his primary. Now, if Lee Zeldin loses his primary out in the and Suffolk County, he can still run again for his own seat. You know, I th- I, the answer is they would have to do some things with the petitions because obviously they're petitioning again on the ballot, but the answer is yes. Yeah, I think I, there would be sufficient enough time to substitute his name, put him on a petition, and get signatures for him. Well, yes. it happened uh, two years ago in, in for the Charlie Wrangell seat. Exactly. Okay. With Adriano, yep. So, uh, so, so let's talk. So, where do you see the Republicans have been able, you know, for, for example, your seat that you used to hold, now held by Jack Martins, who yep. who has declined to run, uh, at least said he's not going to run for Congress, although he had run before and you know potentially was looked at as a good candidate. And I, I, I you know, I like Jack Martins quite a bit. Uh, but uh, your and, seat, and for, and for the record, I'll even say this: I like I like Jack. I think Jack, you know, Jack would be a very formidable candidate. He's you know, and I can't believe I'm saying this as the guy who lost to Jack by 451 votes. Yeah, I'm um, very impressed. But, you know, he's done a good job. And, you know, he would bring a very good record into a congressional candidacy. There's no doubt about that. But he's not running. So that's a, But I was just going to give you an example of his seat, like, like Chuck Fischel's seat, has more enrolled Democrats than Republicans. But yet Republicans managed to have hold the seat for, for quite, quite some time. Is that is that a, a is that a trend on Long Island? Is it is it uphill for Republicans to hold, or is it uphill for Democrats to take these seats? You know, I don't know, and that's a great question. I think a lot of it depends upon the year. You know, is 2014 going to be a change year versus, let's say, 2016, where you have a potential for Hillary Clinton to be the candidate? You know, what what do the numbers look like in terms of people coming out to vote in a gubernatorial year versus a presidential year. Um, a lot of it depends upon who the candidate's going to be. Um, in the Fischilla race, um, the Democrat that's often being talked about, but his name also is being talked about on the congressional side is, you know, a legislator named David Denenberg, someone who I worked with for a number of years on the Nassau County Legislature, uh, somebody who is a ferocious campaigner. Um, this is somebody who walks his district and, and has won re-election time after time in a Republican red district. He would be an excellent candidate for the Democrats. Is he going to run for the state Senate? I don't, I don't know if he is or he isn't, but the Republicans have a very good argument. It's a successful argument that they've made in years past. They made it against me. They made it against Brian Foley. They made it against others, which is the classic New York City argument. Do you want New York City to run all, you know, both branches of the legislature. They, they employed that very well and very effectively in 2010 against myself, against Brian, against Daryl Albertine up in, uh, up in the North Country. And we saw the results. And so, you know, Senator Skelos, uh, and I'm pretty confident the Senate Republican Campaign Committee, uh, whomever is nominated for, uh, Chuck seat and for Lee Zeldin seat, if it's not Lee, um, will employ, you know, you know, remember when, and isn't it better now to have those Senate Republicans in a coalition government uh, running the show than bringing back the Democrats in charge? So 
I guess in general, where does the where does the whole IDC dynamic uh, fall there, right? Because you could probably make the argument that who that a Democrat elected from Long Island might be tempted to join the IDC as opposed to the regular Democratic caucus. Sure. And so, therefore, what is that? Does would 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 a Democrat be willing to campaign on that? I, I don't know that answer. The only thing I do know is the IDC folks are just focusing on governing right now. So whether or not somebody, a potential candidate in you know for state senate, would you know do that, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly an argument. It's certainly something you know that would be pressed upon. It's certainly something that the Senate Democrats would work very hard to ensure that any candidate um, you know for for the state Senate would not do that. But you know who knows? I mean. You know, hopefully, you know, when you are elected, when a person is elected to the Senate, they act in the best interest of their constituents, not necessarily the best interest of their party. I tried to do that when I was in the Senate. Um, I had some success doing that and some, you know, some failures. And, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that if someone were to be elected to the state Senate, you know, they would evaluate what the best, best thing is for their district. Okay, so let me give you two Democratic-type questions, you know, since we talk about the internal po- party dynamics of, of Long Island versus... Sure. At NYC uh, is the potential, uh, I guess, not rift, the chasm uh, between the politics of Andrew Cuomo and the politics of Bill de Blasio. Is, is that going to be a widening gulf this year? And as as they both pursue their own interests in Albany, I could see it. You know, I mean, Andrew, you know, the Governor Cuomo, uh, I, I am a big fan of Governor Cuomo. Um, and his message is a very centrist message, especially on economics. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've known Bill de Blasio for a number of years. I consider him a friend. You know, the argument of uh, income inequality played very well in a Democratic primary and plays well in a New York City audience. Don't know how well that's going to how that well that plays in the suburbs, um, but certainly it's clear to me that given a lot of the uh, economic pronouncements by Governor Cuomo and by others, is that they don't think it is going to play across the state. And I think that you are going to potentially see uh, some growing distance between the two of them. Not not in terms of like you know clashes, but I think you're going to they're going to be very two they have two different philosophies. It'll be interesting to see how they reconcile. Very interesting. And uh, we're talking to Craig Johnson here on Spin Class. Uh, we're sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, BeckermanPR.com. Uh, why do you think uh, Governor Cuomo is hesitating to call these special elections? Is it right to leave uh, quite a few? I think there's like 11 vacancies now between the Assembly and the State Senate. Uh, is it right to keep all these people unrepresented for, for a whole year? Um, you know, look, I, I don't, I don't profess to try and get into, you know, anybody's head. Um, I'm sure, you know, he probably has his reasons. He probably also, I don't think they're unrepresented. I know that, you know, the way the Senate works is that, you know, senators are technically assigned to the offices to make sure that things are running smoothly. Uh, so if a constituent in a, so let's say Eric Adams district, uh, which is vacant right now, has a, has a problem, there are people who are tasked to help them out. So you do have that. Um, look, you know, there is the issue of cost. I mean, you know, how much a special election would cost. Special elections really don't bring out a lot of people to vote. Um, you know, maybe maybe mine was an anomaly uh, back in 2007, um, but there have been other special elections where the turnout has been dismal. That's another cost. So I think that, you know, those are all playing into uh, into account. Okay, amazing. And one uh, one very interesting thing of note as we, we close off this segment, uh, Craig, is uh, uh, for the, the real GOP powerhouse or, or out there, uh, Alphonse D'Amato, the former U.S. senator, yep. made an early endorsement of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, how, how many Republicans are out there scratching their heads about that? Even before there's a candidate on the GOP side, you already have like the, the – uh, the eminence of the party going ahead and, and thrown in for Cuomo. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how many are doing that. You know, like uh, like myself, Senator D'Amato and I are both in the lobbying business. He's at Park Strategies. I'm at McKenna Long and Aldridge. Um, Little we, plug there for the firm. Nothing wrong with that. Right. And look, you know, I think that 
you know, from his point of view, um, you know, I'm glad that Senator D'Amato agrees with me uh, that Andrew Cuomo should be the next governor of the state of New York uh, or continue to be governor. And I think that, you know, his time in politics, like mine, has, you know, moved on. And I think that while he may be a registered Republican, he's also looking at what's in the best interest of both for his clients and for the state. And I think, you know, like I, you know, like we both agree is that Andrew Cuomo has done a great job and should continue to do so. So there's a certain amount of discounting, a little grain of salt that comes along with that endorsement, I, I guess you're saying. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Well, Craig Johnson, former state senator, now a partner at McKenna Long and Aldridge, uh, both in New York City and in Albany. Thanks again for joining us, letting us know what's going on. And uh, hopefully if uh, the race heats up uh, out Long Island, you'll join us again to give us some updates. Absolutely. I love doing it in the summer. love doing it now. Happy to do it in the future. Fantastic. Craig Johnson, thanks again for coming on Spin Class. Thank you, Michael. This is Spin Class. I'm your host, Michael Fragan. And we are just uh, going to do a little unusual type of transition, but one that I thought would be very appropriate. You know, we try to mix a little bit of uh, – the Jewish angle here on the show, not just about politics, but politics as it intersects. Uh, occasionally we talk about Israel. Occasionally we're going to talk about something that's Jewish. But a good, close, longtime friend of mine uh, is a leadership coach and consultant. And uh, if you don't know what that is, it just means that they try and uh, – he's going to explain it to you. We'll put it that way. I'm not going to be able to do so. But Naftali Hoff uh, provides coaching, consulting, and professional development services to organizations throughout the country. He delivers practical, witty, and engaging workshops on a wide range of educational topics. And really, he gives a very good Torah perspective when it comes to leadership, taking responsibility, and the like, which I thought is particularly appropriate as we kind of wade through this whole Chris Christie thing. Chris Christie getting up in front of the whole country, if not the whole world, and taking responsibility for things that his team did and how he let people down and the like. And I'd like to get a little bit of a Torah perspective on that. So, Rabbi Hoff, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great uh, honor to be here, and I'm delighted to be part of the program. Fantastic. So give us an idea about, number one, what it is that you do, Impactful Coaching. You, you, who do you work with? How do you, how do you make them better at what they do? Great. So uh, what we try to do is to support leadership within organizations. We recognize the tremendous responsibility that leaders have today to manage very complicated enterprises, to advance change, to be strategic, and to really help others within the context of their organization grow. And so we try to provide you know, various services, strategic planning, leadership seminars, things like that, that allow people to understand how uh, delegation and envisioning and all these various things work to really optimize their efficacy, their efficiency, and help the organizations move forward in a very complicated and um, quickly moving 21st century corporate and, and, and nonprofit uh, uh, climate and context. Okay, so you don't do political type of consulting or public affairs, people mm -hmm. out there per se, but there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from the from the corporate world or that probably should be learned from the corporate world out there in the public world. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a, uh, a doctoral program right now in human organizational psychology, but there's a tremendous emphasis uh, nowadays on what's called ethical leadership. And that's all about, you know, in the aftermath of Enron and WorldCom and Madoff and all the various large-scale um, scandals and, and some smaller ones where we started to really uh, recognize that if leadership is not grounded in a strong sense of values, if we don't have an ethical baseline by which to operate, you know, we put a lot of people um, at stakes, um, at risk, so to speak. And, um, and that's the investors, that's the customer, that's really people within the organizations as well. And so it's really very important. I think people are, are waking up to this more and more that when we talk about leadership, that we have uh, a baseline by which people understand the, the, that the, the, the rules, the, the, the ground rules for play should be such that are not just about your bottom line, not just about getting ahead, but doing so in a way that has a moral rooting and grounding. And that's why I think it's so important, even for our politicians, certainly them, that they be held accountable, uh, you know, to that standard that we're talking about. Well, let's just talk about politics for a second, because one thing I, you know, when I work with candidates or I've worked with candidates in the past, we always talk about the fact that politics is really a zero-sum game. There's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. So you'd rather be the winner than the loser. There's not, it's just not an idea that both people can win and everybody can go home happy. It just can't happen. So when you're always going to have that idea of being, of doing whatever you can to win, 
So how how do you how do you approach it from that perspective? If you have to do everything you can, then then sometimes ethics and and the like gets left by the wayside. Yeah, so I, I think that that has been a mindset that many people have embraced over the years. And again, I'm not um, you know primarily involved on the political landscape, but my my short answer would be that ultimately these kinds of things do come back to bite you. If not in the actual, uh, let's call it, uh, election process, then subsequent to that, you know, here you had a man in Governor Christie who won by a landslide. There was no question that he was the people's choice for re-election uh, at this time. And yet uh, the, the very fact that some people seem to slight him, whether that be uh, Mayor in Fort Lee down in Jersey City, uh, that whether it be that he was directly involved, not so necessarily informed, that's not clear yet. But what we do know is that his team uh, sought some degree of retribution. And that obviously uh, emanates from, a, from an area of what we call, um, you know, a, a lack of that same degree of standard and value. And as a result, you know, if it didn't get him during the time of election, you know, I think politicians need to realize that people are on the lookout and there are a lot of watchdogs out there. And they ultimately want to see that their politicians are people who do have strong values, stand for something, and uh, people are talking about it. We all know the power of social media. Anytime somebody blinks, uh, there's stuff that goes out and people talk about it. So you really do have to be extremely careful today with the Internet, with your ability to do research on somebody, uh, to say, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, because I think usually the cream will rise to the top. Well, at least we would hope so. But let's take uh, Chris Christie for a second and his... His performance. Let's talk, let's take him first, and then we maybe talk about his aides. And uh, obviously, the story is still unfolding out there, so we don't know all the details. But how would you say? I, I think this one of the signature things that a lot of the political observers out there who looked at Christie's news conference and the like were that Chris Christie went out there and he apologized first, and he led with an apology, so kind of you know, softened people up, maybe. And then he kind of said, I'm responsible. It's my, it's my bad, my responsibility. How important is that for a leader? I think it's extremely important. I think it's extremely important because you do have to ultimately be accountable. Uh, you know, the problem, of course, is that, number one, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't an area of focus. Clearly, obviously, the, the state of the state wasn't um, the platform for him to really speak uh, extensively on the issue of apology and accountability. Um, when I was looking at it, I felt that there was something missing. I personally felt that you didn't really get the sense that, um, A, that there was clarity about what occurred, at least from his perspective, or well, he what seems that not to know exactly. might look like. He says he doesn't really know exactly what happened. I mean, he knows that people did it now, but he kind of learned, you know, he learned things the same way at, that in the same manner as the public did uh, through reading it in the newspaper, which, of course, leads me to another question of the fact that he didn't seem to know what his team was doing. So on both sides, you kind of had this failure of leadership uh, because you might have picked bad people. You also have a failure of leadership to not know what your people are doing. Right, right. I, th I would agree with both of those. I think that uh, when a person, you know, put, when you put somebody on your team and there's somebody who's not only there to serve you and the people that you serve, uh, but they're there to really represent your administration uh, to the state and beyond, you know, you have to be extremely careful the type of people you're dealing with. Now, uh, it's difficult for me to imagine that you have a person of, let's call it, uh, great virtue and, um, you know, above board, above standard, ethical uh, background who at the same time has a team that's operating in a completely different type of way. Normally that disconnect is noticeable and ultimately will be resolved and usually not to the degree that it has to be through a, uh, a scandal of sorts. So um, while I don't know the governor well, and actually we're new to the state and we had lived elsewhere, so I had not been following him uh, throughout his first term, uh, it, it seems to me, and I think I've seen some of this as well through uh, media and speculation and whatnot, uh, that there may be some factors that are actually connected to the governor, at least in terms of the rules of play and the way that the administration operates that would make what occurred uh, back in September on the G GWB as well as um, subsequent, uh, uh, let's call it hardball play with some of these mayors as really an outgrowth of uh, a certain political mindset. That's, that's the impression that I'm getting. So from your analysis, that kind of thing really comes from the top. It's a, it's a culture that's a set or a tone that's set. It might not necessarily be with the governor. It might be with his immediate uh, underling uh, or maybe two levels below that, but it's something that comes that, that seems to 
that seems to come from a, a, a tone that's set uh, up at the top. Yeah, I mean, the, the role of the leader, and this actually, you know, segues back to what I do uh, over at Impactful Coaching. Uh, the role of the leader is extremely important in setting the tone within any organization. If you're familiar with, you, know, you must be familiar with Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, and he talks yes. about level five leadership. So the level five leader is known amongst other things, and perhaps primarily so, as being a person of great, um, let's call it ethical standard, usually a person of great humility, not necessarily the kind of person who's in your face and out there in the media, uh, a little bit more self-effacing in some regards, but is driven, has a vision, is able to put together a great team, but is a person who also um, carries himself and embodies a wonderful, uh, let's call it, um, set of character traits. And, and those values are something that he doesn't just preach, but he models. And so, yes, it's hard for me to know without knowing, you know, the history of the administration and who came in when, et cetera, exactly how it all played out. But one would assume that you have people on your team that are consistent with the values that you want to project because you have the, you have the ability to pick your people. You have the ability to appoint those kinds of individuals who are going to advance the agenda, so to speak, on behalf of the state and beyond. So you really want to make sure that you have good people that you're consistent with in terms of your own set of values and that you know will represent you as well as uh, your state positively to the public. And what about the idea that he took swift action? What he said when he found out about the fact that people were in his office who had done this. Actually, what he said specifically is that people had lied to him. Uh, that was a bigger thing uh, as far as breaking that trust, his trust that he axed them right away, got rid of them, that's it, kind of purged them, you know, cut out that, that bad seed. Uh, and he, he did it very swiftly. And I think the public really, really likes that. They seem to you know, feel that that's the mark of leadership to take that type of action. Uh, now, where, where does that put, you know, where, where do we, from your perspective, where do, how do you deal with that? Is that, is that good or does that show a little bit of weakness or that's, you know, the, the decisiveness kind of conquers out the, uh, conquers over that? So I, I think that the answer is that on, on the one hand, it definitely shows a decisive, um, you know, strong-willed character. He definitely knew he needed to stop the bleeding, and I think he recognized that, uh, you know, there had to be some degree of accountability in concrete terms that people could notice directly and say this is a direct, out, you know, outgrowth or consequence of this particular mess-up. Um, at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction. But, you know, this isn't the only item that, uh, you know, that's on his plate right now. You're talking about abuses of power, not only Bridgegate, we talked about, uh, the mayors, but at the same time, there was a whole piece about how a misappropriation of those funds uh, that were designated for, um, you know, reviving New Jersey tourism in, this, in the in the post-Sandy era. And uh, you know, here you have the governor and his family uh, that are prominently displayed in those advertisements for an extensive period of time, and people are calling into question various things associated with the bigger issue of, let's call it, putting the people first and how one sees himself as a servant leader as opposed to a leader who perhaps has a different type of agenda, maybe looking beyond to 2016 and sees the presidential um, you know, opening as a possibility. And so it's hard to really know, but I think that people are appreciative of that initial step and certainly would like to see more in that same general direction. We're talking with Reverend Naftali Hoff of Impactful Coaching and Consulting, uh, just getting the a total perspective or an ethical perspective on, on leadership and as it relates, I think, quite uh, quite appropriately to the political scene out there, although uh, I think th that a lot of the actors don't always practice it uh, appropriately. Give us a Torah perspective, Remy Hoff, on, 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 on what's been going on. I mean, how would... How are how's a from person supposed to look at this type of uh, at at this type of, of I'll just call it shenanigans this whole thing with the bridge and 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 the way you know power is is corruptive and and doing things that are that are that abusive and then being so uh, what really kills me I mean really upsets me particularly in some of these emails is how callous they were just a total callous indifference to the lives and the inconveniences of so many people right right. So a lot of what we've already talked about actually does, at least in my own mind, you know, a person, when they call themselves uh, 
a consultant in the area of ethical leadership, they obviously have a certain ethical background that they're tapping into. We should hope and, so. And, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, you have to be wary sometimes when some person talks about ethics. You know, what is their standard? What is their benchmark? What are they utilizing in order to say that, in fact, they are, you know, representing an ethical standard to others? So, you know, the partios that we're looking at right now we're reading about uh, represent this in very clear detail, and of course, probably the greatest leader in all of world history, certainly Jewish history, Moshe Rabbeinu, um, is really at the forefront in a variety of different areas associated with leadership. And the one point that I think really strikes me perhaps the most is coming up in a few weeks' time when we read about the Cheta Egel. And Moshe Rabbeinu is up on Har Sinai, and he comes down, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, um, you know, designates the Jewish people as Amcha, as your nation. Moshe takes complete responsibility, even though in that case he really had nothing to do with the behaviors. He was not there, and he had no necessary reason to say, this is my problem. But he jumps right into it. He puts the people first. We also see that when Hashem speaks to Moshe, he says, Chata Yisrael, the Jewish people have sinned, even though Chazal tell us that only a relatively small proportion or percentage of the Jewish people primarily the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude, they were the ones who were uh, the key players in the whole incident. And yet all of the Jewish people are thrown into the conversation. And the idea, Rav Dessler talks about it, others discuss it, is that when you set a standard, and the standard is not necessarily high enough, and this of course connects to Governor Christie as well, then everybody who set that lower standard is held accountable and responsible for the behaviors that come as an outgrowth of that low standard. And so, therefore, when we talk about a person in a leadership position, number one, you want to say to yourself, well, what's the impact of my decision? You know, it's one thing to say I'm going to allocate funds here, allocate funds there. We have what we call a right-right conundrum where both of them look good, both of them are right. It's sort of like when you have, you know, a, a liver or a kidney and you have multiple candidates who desperately need it and you're trying to decide who gets that particular organ. There's no wrong answer but you can't satisfy everybody. That's one dilemma that a, that a leader has. Another dilemma is when it's obvious and clear that the whole agenda is, let's call it political payback, and it's about you know, one-upping the other guy, regardless of the impact to everybody else, that's a complete disrespect to the people, and it really doesn't prioritize the needs of others. And so what we see from Moshe Rabbeinu, what we see from that entire experience is that it really is most important. You know, talking about, a, you're talking about a humble person, a servant leader, there's no one more um, that represents that notion than Moshe Rabbeinu himself. And, uh, and, and so that, I think there's a lot really that we can glean from these partios as we look at this situation, as well as pretty much any situation associated with leadership. Yeah, I will say, having a lot of experience spending a lot of time with different candidates, people who have run for office successfully, and also people who have, run for office unsuccessfully, it's tough to be humble. I mean, that much is for sure. It's, it's easy to be humble after you've lost, but it's very tough to be humble while running. It does take a certain amount of ego to drive oneself every day, day in and day out, to run for office, to say to people, oh, please like me, please vote for me, please do this. It just takes a certain amount of ego. And maybe perhaps we're, elections are just not conducive to – creating the right type of leader. Is that any, any, any truth to that? Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that, although at the same time, some of the greatest leaders uh, have been extremely humble and not necessarily the ones, you know, obviously there are certain circumstances where you have a person like a Gandhi uh, or some others who do not uh, engage in, let's call it a political forum, um, but ultimately are brought into the political arena in one form or another later on in life, or at least are asked to be, because people see the greatness and they want those individuals, Mandela, you know, they want those individuals to be leaders in a more defined uh, context. Um, but I think if we define humility as an appreciation that what I can do is really because of the gifts that I've been given, yes, I've worked on them and yes, I've developed them and yes, I've worked extremely hard to be able to get to a point where I can harness the, let's call it, potential, the talents that are within me and make them real and make them usable and actionable for others. Granted, there is that work, but if I wasn't blessed with all of those gifts from the outset, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing. That still allows a person to maintain their humility while still advancing. Yes, I'm advancing myself, but I'm not doing it because 
I'm great or I'm not doing it because I want people to like me per se. It's not a popularity contest. It's ultimately because I'm be- I believe in what I think I can do to help make my state, my city, my country a better place. And I'm here to serve these people. But this is the means by which that has to happen. And if a person approaches it that way, then they can, in fact, in my opinion at least, maintain a greater degree of humility uh, than if they're just there to self-promote uh, and, uh, you know, advance their own personal agenda. Well, no question you got to work hard to on both ends. Number one, I guess, to be successful. On the other hand, to keep your... Uh to keep that uh, haughtiness in check at the same time. So no, I think that that's definitely a tall order. But being in politics, being in office is definitely a tall order as well. Uh, so what, what can what can the public derive? Uh, last question for you, Rabbi Hoff, as we, we close this segment. Is, what can the public derive from this whole uh, Christie episode? What, what What is it that they should be looking for? In, this is a guy who, who everybody thinks wants to run for president. At the same time, he's apologizing for something as small as traffic on a bridge. And uh, so, what, what can the what, what is it that we should learn as voters or as the as the public who are you know who who in truth these people work for? Uh, and what do, what do we learn coming out of this episode? So. I would say probably two things. Number one, I think we want to monitor his behavior moving forward. You know, you want to see is this contrition really just what we might call reflexive because he's under the heat and because he had to give the state of the state address and because all of the, you know, the, the bright lights were shining on him and he certainly didn't want all the negative press? Or will it be something that ultimately becomes part of his MO moving forward? And I think we also need to look back a little bit and see what's the history. You know, is he in fact somebody who can legitimately claim that he had people, even though we've already established that that's a, a demonstration of poor leadership, but is it in fact um, true that there were people operating within his administration that were inconsistent with the values that he himself maintains and um, promotes within the administration and beyond? Then I think people would feel more comfortable moving forward that this is somebody who can handle uh, the glory, so to speak, of the position. Because if he can't handle it in the state of New Jersey, which is a wonderful state, but still nowhere near the size of the United States of America. Despite you being a newcomer to New Jersey. Yeah. yeah or maybe because, state, but, maybe because but, but, you're but, but a newcomer. It's, but, it's a single, but it's a single state. It's a single state. And you can't compare the responsibility of running one state to the responsibility of running not just one country, but we all know the influence the United States has within the global uh, you know, world uh, and po- political and marketplace and whatnot. So you really want to make sure that you have somebody who's going to be able to withstand various cr- criticisms, who's going to be able to stay focused on his own agenda, is going to be able to lead by example, and really be the kind of person that ultimately should uh, be a positive candidate to represent our country. Okay, Reverend Naftali Hoff, the uh, founder of Impactful Coaching and Consulting. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, and hopefully we'll get your analysis sometime in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I have a wonderful day. I look forward to talking again. Likewise. This is Spin Class, and we're here talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan, your host, and we are sponsored by Beckerman Communications, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, and pleased to welcome Back once again, the great analysis of Jacob Kornblum, who is newly minted with a NYPD press pass to cover the mayor and all things political in New York City. Jacob, welcome back and congratulations. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. So it's a pleasure to have you here as well. And certainly when we want to talk politics from a Jewish angle, as we like to do, to talk about some of those Jewish issues out there. Uh, there's nobody better to explain it to the public than than yourself. So today we had something interesting. It was the first comment of the new de Blasio administration regarding that circumcision ritual known as Mitzitzvapé. And uh, I think that there might be quite a few people out there who might have been surprised what was said, or maybe they shouldn't be. So why don't you tell the audience what happened? Well, the, the mayor announced his pick for uh, health commissioner today uh, at City Hall. So obviously one of the main concerns of the community is whether the new health commissioner would be a little more uh, sympathetic to the issue that has uh, uh, been of a greater discussion during the election that uh, Bill de Blasio basically uh, tried to 
always things during the election saying the new administration will take care of you. Uh, on the other hand, he appointed uh, a deputy commissioner in Bloomberg's administration. So uh, Ms. Bassett, that was appointed today as health commissioner, was a deputy commissioner in the health department in the Bloomberg administration. So when she was asked uh, by one of the reporters um, what the new administration intends to do with regard to Matisse Repair, she made a very interesting, I found it very interesting because it was in contradiction with what some of our community leaders promised us prior to the election. Uh, she basically said, and I quote, our intent is to keep it in place. But she said that the modifications would be reaching out to the community and hearing their concerns. I'm sure that uh, Mayor de Blasio and uh, even Mayor Bloomberg uh, uh, heard already the concerns that the community has with this consent form. And uh, uh, de Blasio even agreed with her saying, that in the meantime, while a solution is being uh, uh, a thought, uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, while a, so a solution is being sought, uh, the current policy in place will take effect even in his administration. So, I mean, uh, yes, it's a new administration, and I'm sure that the mayor in two weeks can change all of the policies that are in place um, from the Bloomberg administration, but well, when it comes to such a sensitive issue in the community where he promised that he would take a different path by saying that the intent uh, is something that would be kept in place, is something that uh, I don't have to worry of because he did promise an open door and an open air in City Hall. Uh, he has Jewish advisors. So I'm sure he's not, uh, you know, going to block them all um, from hearing their opinion. But the question is, how long would it take? How long would it keep uh, the current policy be kept in place? And would he withdraw uh, the mayor's uh, lawsuit against him? So, Jacob, I, as you might know, I spent some time on the campaign trail on the other side working for the person who didn't win uh, by the name of Joe Loda. Unfortunately. Well, it's I, I was on your behalf. Yeah, no, unfortunately he didn't win. Not unfortunately I spent time with him. I it was actually quite yeah. quite it was quite good and I got to see you quite a bit. But what we heard over and over is that uh mayor uh sorry, the mayoral candidate, Bill de Blasio, had promised to rescind the the consent form uh right away. That was that was that was what you heard over and over. And uh now well, it's very clear that that wasn't the case. In fact, there was this big rally, I remember, on the eve of the primary uh, held by the the Aroni side of of uh, the Satmar community, uh, essentially uh, lauding mayoral candidate uh, hopeful, Democratic primary hopeful, Bill de Blasio, for his agreement to overturn Matisse de Pest. So... How quickly do these promises uh, are these promises not kept? I mean, right away, as this video was published, the De Blasio campaign uh, 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 basically uh, denied that any uh, uh, conversation about the issue was even uh, uh, in place. So uh, he always kept a very vague when it comes to when it came to the issue of Matisse. They only promising that he would review it and come up with a better solution. But, I mean, from covering him during the entire year, I think at one point he said that he would come up with a solution prior his election. And at this point, he's already the mayor of New York City, uh, three weeks into his new administration, and he actually appointed already a health commissioner, knowing that this health commissioner is in favor of these regulations. Yeah, certainly if I was on that side, or say, not that I'm on any side here specifically, not to, disclosing that, but I, I, I feel, you know, I'm troubled by this, uh, but I'm certainly troubled by the fact that when asked about it, does uh, Dr. Bassett said that she, well, she's on the side of protecting children. 
And I, I, I that really bothers me. I have to say that that continues to bother me. The idea, and you, you heard it a lot from the Bloomberg administration, of as if the parents who perform uh, a bris and do it with mitzvah pat are not interested in protecting their children. Uh, I, I got it. That that really sticks in my craw. Uh, I I have no answer to that because I'm not one of these machas that uh, would say I will be there and protect our values in the new administration. I'm just a reporter on ground, uh, just uh, giving my my point of view and just uh, 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 giving you a sense. Well, of, how do the machers uh, feel right now? What are the machers saying? Or are they, are I they guess just... you should interview some of these machers that want to go on record. Yeah, it's tough to find machers <laughs> who want to be on the record. There are a lot of machers out there, but they don't necessarily want to speak when it comes to, uh, and they certainly don't want to speak negatively about the mayor. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, especially when there's a poll uh, today. The poll published today showed that uh, uh, overwhelmingly uh, uh, 67% of, of New Yorkers are optimistic about the future of New York City over the next four years. So nobody wants to really uh, uh, damage these honeymoon moments uh, uh, and give uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio a hard time. But I think, uh, 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 in essence, the, the issue is not necessarily... Matita, Pepe, or Stop and Frisk, or any other issue. It's basically, uh, Bill de Blasio promised change. Uh, he took, uh, a first deputy that was in the Koch administration. Uh, he took, he, uh, right now, there are dozens of acting commissioners that were not replaced, uh, from the Bloomberg administration. So basically, uh, this is a, semi-Bloomberg administration uh, with a different head. So uh, the pace that uh, de Blasio is taking in appointing uh, new uh, heads to all of these uh, uh, agencies is really taking time. In the meantime, policy is not being changed on the various issues that matter to some communities. Well, certainly quite remarkable, I guess, that, that the pace of change has been particular has been so slow I, I think that over during the course of the transition it was slow but everybody said well a lot of mayors haven't appointed in this time but now we're you know, almost a month in you know, we're, I'm sorry we're two weeks in uh, and it seems that the appointments are being made but they're not being made quickly and uh, I saw well, some what is it the... in some in some article in some publication that uh, uh, a quote that's saying that Bill de Blasio basically knew uh, September 7th, he knew that he is the Democratic nominee and that he will go on to win the mayoral election. I mean, it wasn't a surprise that he won the primary when he was already the front runner and then he went on to win overwhelmingly the general election. So it's not like he had only four weeks to decide on the appointees. He actually had three and a half months to uh, pick and choose. So um, I guess we are on DBT. That is a new, uh, uh, you know, you have Eastern time, you have GMT, and you have DBT, that's the Blasio time. Uh, It just takes longer for the new mayor to get into his position and to appoint the right people to, to all of these agencies. And we'll just have to, uh, uh, you know, wait out. We have to live long to wait out. Well, you, you got to give him. He's being uh, replaced. Despite starting the day late, and that probably has a trickle-down effect of course, along uh, the lines of being late to subsequent events. If you're late to one, it's hard to go ahead and catch up on that time. But I will say politically, he's had a string of success. He certainly got his choice for, for speaker. And we, we discussed the speaker's race quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, and you were on discussing it as well, uh, he certainly seemed to have gotten the person that he wanted. Absolutely, and he succeeded in basically being the one that decided the race for her. Uh, the Melissa Marcos people claimed that they had 26 votes uh, prior the Brooklyn delegation, uh, which means that the Brooklyn delegation, if they few, only brought four votes. Uh, I cannot, uh, um, you know, confirm uh, uh, these uh, numbers, but the, the, the idea 
the mayor made some phone calls and made sure that the Brooklyn delegation is the one deciding who the next speaker is, uh, speaks values in, 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 in terms of how, how much of an effect he will have uh, in, 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 in basically turning the wheel in his new administration. Uh, uh, she's not uh, on the right of him. She is to be considered on the left of him. Uh, so this is for him a uh, uh, a better term for the mayor to be more the center than the left uh, in, in 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 this group. But uh, there's no question that he succeeded in, in getting his choice elected. That we all have to wait and see uh, uh, whether they'll fall in line. Uh, you know, Sharon had this uh, this great. Uh, uh, a term saying what you see here is not what you saw then uh, in the place where you are. So if the Blasio comes to the sense that uh, some of the promises that he made during the election uh, uh, would not, uh, 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 you know, uh, be realistically panned out, uh, where is the speaker going to be on this issue? Where is the city council going to be on this issue? How is it going to work out when he goes up to Albany? Is uh, Governor Cuomo going to side with him on these issues, regardless of what the city council decides? So, Jacob, it would seem to be in this new structure, this new power structure, that uh, the little village of Borough Park is ascendant, uh, having been represented by possibly two of the most powerful councilmen out there, David Greenfield and Brad Lander. They seem to be in the driver's seat driving this new administration. Yeah, I mean, Brad. Uh, Lander, the, not, not the administration, but the as far, but the uh, yeah. new city council power structure. Absolutely. I mean, we'll wait and see to uh, uh, assess the value of David Greenfeld uh, once he gets a, a a chairmanship of some sort of committee that he could really bring back, uh, you know, really use it to his extent. But uh, there's no question that by Brooklyn coming on board at the last minute and by Brad Lander being the, the leading force behind Melissa Marta Verito's uh, candidacy uh, it really puts Borough Park in, 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 you know, in the place of uh, reaching the thorn. I mean, uh, we just have to take, we just have to seize the opportunity and, uh, you know, not mess it up, get the, the necessary needs for our community, uh, regardless of any power struggle here and there. Well, what is the Borough Park agenda? Then, if you had to put an agenda together from your perspective for the Orthodox com- community, and you said the Orthodox community was the big winner or one of the big winners in this election, what would be the agenda? If if you ask the people, it's uh, you know we are talking about affordable housing. We're talking about uh, uh, restoring Priority Five and Priority Seven vouchers uh, in terms of. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the program, in terms of the uh, Department of Health, it's small businesses uh, reducing uh, the excessive fines, the grades, and so on. So uh, uh, what's good for Borough Park is good for the city. What's good for Borough Park is good for the city. I think probably every neighborhood should probably uh, adopt that. Sounds like a very humble mantra. So... Jacob, thank you very much for, for joining us here on Spin Class, and uh, hopefully we'll have some more understanding with regard to uh, the mayor, his new administration, where he's headed, and the like uh, as we progress, and we'll have you on again soon. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank Bye. you, Jacob. This is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman Communications and Beckerman PR, and as uh, just an apology, just uh, as I put out right before the show, uh, that uh, that that Rockland County newly minted Rockland County Executive Ed Day was unable to sh- join us due to a scheduling uh, issue, but we will have him on sometime during February because uh, the show is uh, possibly going to be off for the next uh, two weeks. So uh, we're TBD on that one. But uh, the world of politics goes on, and there's uh, so much going on, and. You know, one of those things just as a, you know, that closing type of discussion, and we discussed earlier in the show the idea, well, that uh, 
Republicans didn't want to run against Kathleen Rice in my home seat out there in uh, in Nassau County for the open McCarthy seat. And this would seem like a prime opportunity to pick up a to pick up a, a seat for the Republicans. Uh, and it would certainly seem like that you would have some prominent people wanting to run and their names have been thrown out there. But so far, Kate Murray, Tony Santino, uh, Jack Martins has said he's not going to run. Some of the big names on the Republican side have decided that they aren't going to do it, uh, leaving it to possibly some lesser names who have tried in the past. So uh, you have to you have to think there is that not everybody uh, necessarily is running to run to Washington these days. There's got to be an element of that of sitting in Congress, despite the the covet that comes along with it, uh, some of the dysfunction as far as wanting to get things done. And, uh, you know, as a thought, think back to the second segment with regard to leadership and ethics and the like, very tough to, I think, psychologically to want to be in government, to want to be, to take the whole, to want to be in Washington with all the dysfunction going on and to want to be in that type of constant uh uh, running and constant fundraising, it definitely takes a toll on the person. It ta- and being in office really takes a toll on uh, on people as they go along. So something to think about. It's not all roses out there in the political world. And there are a lot of people who, who want to do it, want to talk about it. But here we'll uh, sit here and analyze it. So thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. We will see you possibly next week, possibly in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>